This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. confession being inside that dark box is very interesting and relatively speaking in the long history of the Catholic Church it's quite recent. The obligation to go to confession came in in the 13th century under Pope Innocent III. Before that it was not you know a sin not to go to confession but he made it actually a mortal sin for Catholics or for Christians, you know this was before the Reformation, not to make their confession at least once a year. Now typically a penitent made their confession kneeling before the priest. And uh, there was quite a lot of physical contact. You know, they would lean on the priest's lap. The priest always ended the confession by laying his hands on the head of the penitent. And what happened through the Middle Ages, and, uh, you know, this is very well attested and recorded, was that there was quite a lot of seduction, particularly of women, by priests in the confessional. Not of children, because from the Middle Ages, when confession became obligatory right through to the 20th century, you didn't make your confession until about the age of 13 or 14 anyway. Has the ritual of confession won its moral course? And is the dark box seen today as more a symbol of Catholic oppression rather than a respected collective practice? Hello, I'm Susan Cahill and you're very welcome to Talking Books. What is it like to be famous as the man who wrote that book? British novelist Louis de Bernier, author of Captain Corelli's Mandolin, Birds Without Wings and Senor Vivo and the Coca Lords, talks Homer, the lyrical landscape and becoming a father at the age of 60. And the prolific and authoritative religious writer John Cornwell discusses mortal sin, general absolution, the Vatican and the dwindling Catholic faithful. This is a show about history and tradition, music and memories, shame and forgiveness. But first, imagining Alexandria, Louis de Bernier and life after Captain Corelli's mandolin. Louis de Bernier was born in London in 1954 into a French Protestant Huguenot family with a proud military tradition, his father having served in the British Eighth Army in Italy during World War II. In his late teens, Louis travelled to Colombia on the advice of an old English teacher who said, you must never ever think that the only good writers are writing in English. You can't be literate if you haven't read Tolstoy or Balzac. After a year in Colombia, Louis travelled to Turkey and then on to Greece, countries which he says have inspired and shaped him as a writer. In 1990, Louis published his first book in his Latin American trilogy, The War on Don Emmanuel's Nether Parts, a book, he says, which was influenced by the writing style of Colombian novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez. This was followed up by Senor Vivo and the Coca Lord and the troublesome offspring of Cardinal Guzman. Louis is possibly best known for his fourth book, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which was published in 1994, which tells the emotional story of an Italian soldier who was part of the occupying force on the Greek island of Cephalonia during the Second World War. The book has sold over 2.5 million copies and has placed Louis firmly on the international literary map. Louis's other books include Red Dog, 
Birds Without Wings, A Parson's Daughter and Notwithstanding, a collection of short stories revolving around a fictional English village. In 2010, Louis went through a painful divorce from his wife Cathy and since then he's become a champion for father's rights being the high-profile patron of Families Need Fathers. He says the emotional desolation is hard to describe. There were many times when I felt suicidal. One of the most extreme things you feel is a fantastically deep, bitter anger at being treated so outrageously. Since his divorce, Louis has devoted himself to his children, Robin and Sophie, and his first vocation, writing poetry. Well, I met up with the lovely Louis at the Hay Festival Kells and had a great chat with him in the gardens of the Hedford Arms Hotel. I asked Louis about the role music has played in his life and its impact on his writing style. If I can get slightly technical, I'd keep noticing these symmetries between music and poetry. For example, m- music often depends on a rather pleasant repetition of something mm. you heard before, maybe in a slightly different form. And I, I use that a lot in poetry, a sort of incantation. It's, it's a rhetorical device mm. using repetition. March time, for example, boom, boom, mm. boom, boom. That's the same as the rhythm of the trochee. You see, and, and you can draw an analogy between three-eight time in music and mm. the dactyl as a metric foot. You, you can think of lots of analogies like that. I, I was wondering, actually, if you, if you could write out a poem almost in musical notation with bars Mm. Uh, I've never tried it but it occurs to me you ought to be able to do that Louis can you tell me about the inspiration to your first collection the inspiration for my first collection came out of a great love of the poetry of Constantine Kavafis who was a Greek Alexandrian poet who died I think in 1924 he wrote about his erotic life and also about the time when the whole of the culture of the Mediterranean Rim was Hellenic the Romans took Hellenic culture everywhere they went and some of the poems are in the form of advice Nearly all of them have a narrative, and these poems have always spoken to me very directly. I think my voice is very similar to his, even though I'm not in the least bit like him. And I, I noticed about three years ago that I had written enough poems in his manner or under his influence to make a, a separate volume. And I quite like the idea of having a volume that is themed. So m- my next one will be entirely about love and desire. And when you say you're very different to him, surely if your poetry here is a homage of sorts to his writing, you must deeply respect him or empathise with him in some way. I can't remember where this expression comes from. I think some scientist made it up that the modern scientist is standing on the shoulders of giants. Obviously, if, if you're standing on the shoulders of giants, you can even write better than the original, but you couldn't do it unless you were on the shoulders of the giant. It's, it's like that with Shakespeare. If, if you're writing in English, you are always standing on Shakespeare's shoulders, and he's always looking over your shoulder at the same time. And how significant is Greek mythology to you and the whole Greek culture? I know that you spent a lot of time when you were younger travelling there, but how influential is it to you as a writer, as a thinker? Well, Greece comes into the soul in many ways. I did my degree in philosophy, for example, and philosophy is an impossible enterprise unless you understand how it all originated with the ancient Greeks. Then, later in life, I fell in love with Greek contemporary music, people like Theodorakis and Hagiadakis, and, and through the music I came to the poetry. And of course, I feel very, very much at home in Greece. I've got lots of friends there, and I, lo- I love being there, I love the food. When I'm at home, I cook Greek food mostly, so I, I do have Greece in my soul. And you can't ever forget that ancient Greek culture really is the foundation of modern European culture. And we've fed in or appended our own cultures. For example, if you read the Book of Iris Myths that Lady Gregory collected, it reads very, very like Homer. It's extraordinary. 
for example, the use of tropes. Or another thing that's strikingly similar to Homer is the amount of attention that's given to what people were wearing. Brooches and robes and brass this and silver that and so on. But somehow this Greekness has, has just permeated our culture to such an extent. And, and we, we all enrich it by bringing in extra stuff from our own cultures, I feel. I think that at heart we are all ancient Greeks. But the funny thing is, um, Louis, that a lot of people would think that Homer is a bit inaccessible. Oh, but he's, he's immensely readable. What people don't understand about classics is that, is that the reason they're classics is they're so damn good. And you're doing yourself a disservice if you are put off by the distinguished-looking covers. The Iliad is, is, is really a collection of anecdotes, <laughs> just as the, the um, Irish myths are. And, and they're good fun. And they are emotionally engaging. They are emotionally engaging. So you, you do feel sorry or angry, you know, with Achilles, or you, you feel the grief when Patroclus is killed. Yeah, they're only classics because they're so good. Earlier today you gave a talk at the Hay Festival. And you spoke very passionately about Colombia and the drugs wars. Mm. You said that anyone who takes cocaine is involving themselves in murder in some way. The reason I feel this is that there is a separate question, which is about whether drugs should be legalised, which would cut the criminals out. There's a lot to be said in favour of that, except I'm not quite sure what the social consequences would be mm. if everybody could be as stoned as they liked all the time. But given that the drugs are illegal, what has happened is, is that it's put the value of them so high that the dealers or the manufacturers in Colombia and now in Mexico, actually, the problems moved to Mexico, they've become so rich that they are not accountable. As I said in the talk, Pablo Escobar could give a million dollars to every prison guard in the prison he was in and he just walked out. When you have absolute immunity, I'm afraid your whole moral framework collapses. So you send men out to kidnap little girls and then rape them to death. And for you, that's normal because you will always get away with it. You can even give a million dollars to the parents and they'll go away. Do you see what I mean? So what happens is when you have that kind of immunity to the law and immunity to common morality is that society in the areas where those people operate just simply collapses. And is that that disgust that drove you to write about this or how did those very intense feelings help you to shape a story? Well, at the time, I was very immersed in, um, I suppose, Colombian culture and very interested in it. I mean, much more than I am now because I've sort of gone past that stage. But I was getting more and more upset about the, the effects of the cocaine trade on ordinary people's lives in Colombia. And coincidentally, at the same time, the press got interested in the issue, so it was fabulously easy to research. And I also I had a friend who was a diplomat at the Colombian embassy who was very helpful. And since you've published your trilogy, does South America still hold a fascination for you in any way? Or you said there that you've moved on in some ways. What has happened is that I, I've moved on in a literary way. So I still, I still love Latin America. And I'd love, for example, to spend more time in, say, Uruguay or Bolivia. Mm. I'd love to do mm. that. But I've moved on in a, in a literary way. Back then, I was very deeply in love with um, the magic realism, mm. the political realism of people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and so on. And they were a huge influence on me, those Latin American writers. But eventually, I actually got really bored with magic realism. Mm. I, 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 just, I sort of felt that books where anything can happen, although it's very liberating, it actually means you don't have to have a proper plot. And one of the things I loved about those writers is was their, the poetic quality of their prose. And I've mm. tried to keep that. I've tried to keep the poetry. But I, and also I've kept the political realism, but mm. I've given up the magic realism. And as time has gone by, well, I got interested in Turkey and Greece. And at, at the moment, I'm more intrigued by Asia than anywhere else because I'm 69 now and there's so many places I haven't been. It's a bit worrying. I'll have to fit them in. But I, I've recently been to Nepal twice and, you know, India and so on and Burma, which I really liked. I'm not sure I will get any fiction out of those cultures because I don't think I'm ever going to understand them well enough. And Louis, when you say you don't think you'll get stories from a country, that 
that's very interesting. When you visit countries, is it that the countries just come alive and you feel their stories or you're inspired in some way? And how can you just arrive in a country and feel that there's no story there for you? Like you mentioned India and Nepal, and they are two beautiful countries which are visually possibly two of the most stimulating countries in the world. Mm. So when you say there's no stories, I'm fascinated by that. Oh, I didn't I didn't mean there were no stories. Obviously, the place is absolutely bulging with stories. Mm. It's, mm. it's just that I don't feel I, I yet understand their cultures well enough to write convincing stories. I'm about to tackle this because my next novel will be largely set in Sri Lanka when it, when it was Ceylon. Mm. So I've got to come to terms with the difference between the Tamils and the Sinhalese and the strange syncretistic nature of the Buddhist religion there and their superstitions and beliefs and their their social customs and even how they build their houses you have to learn about all these Mm. things so i i will get to grips with it if i have to but what gets me going is if a story arrives in my lap and i just can't resist it that's what happened with captain corelli and and with birds without wings but it involved a lot of research because Mm. you're you're blending historical facts and you're developing fiction through Mm. that but you have to to work within the context yes you do you in the first place you really do have to go there you can't expect to be able to do it in a library or just by googling things it's impossible you've got to go there and find out what things taste like and what the air smells like in the evening and whether the water tastes metallic you know the the things like that that make a place come real to you but i i do i find that if i have an idea for a story i get so fired up about it that i'm really happy to put all that research work in it becomes extremely interesting i mean what could be more interesting than say finding out the folk customs of the singalese so do you become obsessed in some way would that be the best way of describing it or how would you describe it i am obsessive i have terrible crazies one thing after another you know it could be fishing or golf or whatever And, and similarly i have created obsessions which come and go like any other craze I'm, I'm like toad of toad hall you know one minute it's motor cars and <laughs> the next minute it's something else i exploit my obsessions well to make a living out of them really mm. i can't really work more than a morning at a time there was a time when i could work for 16 hours but then i was a smoker and black coffee drinker can i ask you a little bit about fatherhood oh, because yeah. you're a very proud father mm. and i'm wondering how becoming a parent later in life how that changed your writing and your oh. approach to writing i always did make an effort to include children in my writing and I had been a school teacher since my late 20s so I did actually balk at the idea of having children myself because I felt I already had hundreds if you're a teacher that's how you feel you feel sort of bogged down in children and I'm glad I didn't become a father early in life because I don't think I would have been nearly such a good father as I am I would have been much more selfish when I was young but now I'll give my kid the last thing on my plate if they want it I wouldn't have done that when I was 28. (laughs) And it's interesting that you've published your poetry now as you have Mm. enjoyed parenthood. So do you think becoming a father has allowed you to maybe look deeper in yourself in some way and allow you to offer the poetry to the world? It has liberated me emotionally to a great extent, you know, because if you're you're just doing romantic love, then it's Mm. all muddled up with desire, isn't it? Mm. Whereas the love for your children and the love they have for you is much more powerful and more enduring. Well, for me anyway, it has none of those complications that you get with with loving a woman. And I feel uh, actually so emotionally fulfilled by my children that in a way I really don't need anybody else. There's a British writer called Tim Piers. He's a nice writer. He's a good writer. His first novel in particular is a classic called In the Place of Fallen Leaves. He said to me, Many, many years ago, he said, Louis, until you have children, you don't understand the nature of human love. And I said to him, that's bollocks, Tim. It's raw rubbish. But he's right. It niggled at me, and I realised that he was right. And he is right. And it's a huge responsibility and a huge privilege, Louis. And mostly it's terrific fun. Mm. What could be more fun than, say, 
tickling them out of bed in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like publishing an international bestseller and being known as a man who wrote Captain Crowley's? But you've done so much more than that. But if I walked around where the chats were earlier and there was possibly about 150 people queuing to buy your poetry and get it signed and there was a huge big buzz there. But it was Captain Corelli, Captain, you know, all the buzz, you know, this is a man, you know. That must be a great privilege in one way, must be very exciting and it's such a triumph. But also then trying to move on from all of that and be the man who also has published poetry, the man who's also published other novels. Is there a curse to that in some way, as well as that great success? I'm wondering what that like, because there must be very mixed emotions there. Well, up to a point, it's an albatross, because mm. pe- people want you to write the same thing again, but different, which you can't do. Mm. You, you have to keep moving mm. along you can't just be a one trick pony mm. the, the great fuss and hoo-ha when I had to travel all over the world mm. being famous it's actually it, it greatly delayed the writing of my next mm. novel which I think is far better than Captain Corelli I, I needed the time to change my style and also to, I think to mature as mm. a writer before Birds Without Wings came out mm. Birds Without Wings is the Turks are saying it's their war and peace and they're using it to teach Ottoman history at Turkish universities and so okay in Britain and Ireland I may be saddled with being the author of Captain Corelli but in Turkey I'm saddled with being the author of Birds Without Wings and that just shows you the differences in readership it shows you temperaments things that are different and what works oh no I was going to add that in Australia I'm best known for Red Dog yeah. I do I do get annoyed when people say I loved your book as mm. if I'd only written yeah. one because I hear that so often but then there's other people out there there's lots of aspiring writers who just want to be recognised as a writer and would just love that type of fame and not just notoriety but recognition well this is like if, if you, a child says to you um, I want to be famous mm. you, you ask what do you want to be famous for mm. do something to earn it I think that there is a natural human vanity with saying, like I want to be a megastar you know I want to write a bestseller mm. but you have to to be sensible about it and furthermore when you're at home in your house you know the cats and the children don't know if you're famous and don't mm. give a damn you know what I mean you, you, it, it, it's, it's your friends especially the friends you had before you were successful who keep you grounded so is it fatherhood that you're proudest of if you were to look at what you've written so far and what you've produced what has been your proudest moment then has it been fatherhood or is it the accolades of being this great writer oh it's definitely fatherhood i mean my children are by far my best additions i love writing but there's absolutely no way i would ever think it was more important than my kids Mm. that would be a a capital offense to think that (laughs) and your next collection is about desire it's about passion it's about love love and desire yes yes because obviously as i've had quite an interesting life Mm. and uh, I've accumulated plenty of material some of it goes back to when I was in my late teens but obviously reworked with the wisdom of hindsight and you've loved many women so it seems from your stories and from your books hmm not as many as Casanova possibly And that was British poet and novelist Louis de Bernier, Louis' debut collection of poetry, Imagining Alexandria, Poems in Memory of Constantinus Cafis, is published by Harville Secker. It's gloriously evocative, sensuous and a real Greek escape. OK, coming up next, a little box and a very dark, shady history. John Cornwell on the secret history of confession. Talking Books on Newsalk 106 to 108. 
And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. If you've any books or authors that you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. I know I have some great ones coming up for you over the next couple of weeks, including Anne Michaels, Emer McBride, Ian McCune and Richard Ford. OK, let's now move on to an entirely different space. John Cornwell is one of Britain's most prolific and respected religious writers. He's the director of the Science and Human Dimension Project at Jesus College, Cambridge, and is the author of 20 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Hitler's Pope. He has also written Coleridge, Poet and Revolutionary, Breaking Faith, The Power to Harm, Darwin's Angel, Philosophers and God, Consciousness and Human Identity, and The Hiding Place of God. His books of fiction include The Spoiled Priest, Seven Other Demons, and Strange Gods. John's latest book, The Dark Box, a Secret History of Confession, has just been published by Profile Books and makes for hard-hitting and hugely absorbing reading. It's superbly researched, shocking in parts, but without doubt mature and reflective. The Dark Box, a Secret History of Confession, is a robust and profound investigative narrative on the history of confession and how it has shaped Catholicism. John covers everything from mortal sin to Shakespeare. Julian of Norwich to alcoholism, not to mention his own disturbing personal experience of confession, which I have to say he reflects on very movingly. Yes, it's ambitious, dark and wonderfully informative. And I guarantee you one thing, this book will not just engross you, it will enlighten and challenge you, but maybe not for the poolside read. Interestingly, when John first began researching this book, he asked his Catholic friends, how long since your last confession? And the results were quite surprising. Well, a few Sundays ago, I gave John a shout at his home in Cambridge and entered the dark world of the confessional box. I have to say, it was quite a revelation. I asked John, his views on social media, Twitter, Facebook and all that jazz and today's grating fashion for fessing up. A great phrase is this word fessing up. You know, everybody's into it and uh, we're into counselling, we're into every kind of, you know, these uh, shows, you know, like Oprah Winfrey and so forth. It seems to be a natural instinct to want to unburden oneself. The thing is that that could still be a very important and natural part of confession. But uh, for several generations, through you know, the best part of the 20th century, what happened in confession was that you told a list of sins like a laundry list. You know, I told six lies, I stole money from my mother's purse twice, that kind of thing. So these were the telling of sins which were divorced from your, the story of your life and your relationships. And that's a kind of different thing from, you know, what we're seeing today as a very popular kind of unburdening where it's all about relationships. It's all about, you know, the narrative of people's lives. And I think that that shows that contradiction, you know, that begins to show us where there is a great difference between confession, certainly as it used to be, and um, the whole business now of fessing up. And do you think that the confession box has actually run its course, that it's almost becoming obsolete when we have these terrific psychotherapists that we can go to and counsellors and that we live in a world where we all divulge to our close friends what's going on? You know, we look to say our sins in different ways or we cough up what we've done wrong to our friends and our families now, whether it's before we were probably more reserved and tighter in our relationships. 
Well, I think there's a very big overlap here. In psychotherapy and in psychoanalysis, what people are doing is talking about their past and their present and their future in relation to you know, their friends and their relatives and their relationships in general and workplace. In the confessional, that can be happening too, and uh, I think that that's what is beginning to happen in confession. But of course, there is a difference because it's also in relation to the presence of God in people's lives and the spiritual dimension. What this points to is the possibility of, you know, the confessional being a very sound and beautiful and profitable thing for people spiritually, but very different from what it used to be in the past, you know, which was uh, people were forced to go to confession. They felt guilty if they didn't. And 